In the name of God who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. Please sit. Today, the people who put together our lectionary, that three-year sort of course of text that we follow, have made some very, very interesting, in my opinion, perhaps slightly unfortunate choices. First, we have this tiny, tiny snippet from the book of Jonah. And Jonah almost never comes up in the lectionary. It's this fantastic short book that we hear maybe twice in the course of three years. And both times we hear it, it's this tiny, tiny little passage that almost seems to say not a lot if you don't know the context of the book at all. So if you want to talk about Jonah a little bit, um, you can come hang out with me after the service. And we'll talk about the rest of the text a little bit too and all the other things I'm about to say. But we'll talk about Jonah and the amazing sort of book that it is because it has so much to say to us in this moment. But if I do that sermon right now, we're going to be here all morning. So come see me after. I, I won't keep you all morning. But if you're thinking in the back of your head, if you have little bells ringing about whales and big fish, you're exactly right. This is the guy who gets thrown overboard because he's running away from God, which is hilarious, right? He's running away from the God who created the heavens and the earth by getting on a boat and thinking he's going to go to the other side of the world. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Anyway, they end up throwing him off the boat and he's swallowed by what the text says is a very big fish. I promise it actually has a lot to say to us. So we get this very short, short sort of snippet today from the book of Jonah. And it has kind of a piece of the crux of the story in it. Jonah is sent to Nineveh to proclaim that if they don't repent, God is going to destroy them. And then wondrously, they do repent. They change their ways and the text is really clear that the whole city changes. You don't get that in this passage, but the whole thing changes, even the cows. All of a sudden, the cows are repenting, and the cows are better cows after Nineveh, after Nineveh changes than they were before. Seriously, the whole city has changed. Isn't that amazing? And so God spares Nineveh. Nineveh that is part of the Assyrian kingdom, Nineveh that is part of the enemy, filled with people that Jonah doesn't like, filled with people that the people of Israel wouldn't like because they're outside of God's covenant. And the rest of the book, the whole rest of the book of Jonah, is about Jonah's feelings about the fact that God doesn't punish them because they change their ways and God shows them mercy. And the whole rest of it is about Jonah's anger and Jonah's inability to deal with the fact that God is merciful and loving and kind and that God is willing, maybe even desirous of loving Jonah's enemies, even though they are sinners. And then we get this tiny, tiny snippet also from 1 Corinthians. And here, the creators of the lectionary have left out all of the meaty stuff. This is the only sort of acceptable piece of the text right here in the middle. The rest of it is a little, it would feel uh, unpopular because it's gendered, I think, and probably very outdated and maybe even offensive to some of us, to our ears. Because sometimes when Paul gets going on some things, he's looking at the world from his ancient perspective and things are a little different. And so I want to read to you the sentence or two that comes next, just so you know what we're missing. At the end of our passage, Paul says, the present form of the world is passing away. And then he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, 
how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And he goes on then to say that just about everybody else. So this whole chunk of text is an argument on Paul's part that basically says, whatever state you're in right now, don't change. Don't get married if you're not married. Don't make any big decisions. Don't take on any new responsibilities or any new relationships because I want you to be free of anxiety, meaning I want you to be focused on the work of Jesus. He writes to the church in Corinth that time is running short, that the present is passing away, and that all the things that they know and all the things that hinder them and all the things that limit them will be gone. We should hear in this a sort of nod at the fact that the Roman Empire and the oppression of the Romans will be gone, but also the expectation is that when Jesus comes, all of these things that are part of our earthly society will fall away. And so we who believe, he says to the folks in Corinth, we should just live that way now. So if you haven't made any promises, don't make them. Don't be interested in individualism or earthly relationships, but be focused entirely on the work that Jesus calls us to do. Do what you can now. Don't make any big decisions. Jesus is coming. And remember that when Paul is writing, this is after the resurrection. So Paul is waiting, and so is the early church, for Jesus to come back, for the end of time, for the kingdom of God to be fulfilled. So when we go to the gospel, we actually take a step back in time, right? To the time when Jesus is alive. And when we find Jesus in this passage, we sort of complete the picture for the morning. John is arrested for proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come near. And the next thing that we see is the personification of that kingdom in Jesus. He shows up and we're intended to say, oh look, there's the kingdom in that guy. He's showing us what the kingdom looks like and how to be a part of it. And in the text this morning, he's calling disciples to help him, to help him proclaim the good news, to fish for people, to carry out his mission on earth, to tell the whole world that the kingdom has come near and that it will come again. Also to proclaim God's love and mercy, to heal the sick, to welcome the outcast, and to teach us to love our enemies. Right, Jonah? Sound like a good plan? to fulfill precisely what Jonah is mad about about the end of his book, that God will be merciful and loving and good, that God's intention from the very beginning of time was to redeem all of creation, even the parts of creation and the specific people that we struggle to love. This is God's mission, to redeem everything and everyone, even if we don't necessarily like what that means or how that feels. Now, elsewhere in Matthew, a couple chapters ahead in the fifth chapter, Jesus says this, You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. This is part of what it means to be faithful, to be part of God's kingdom. And admittedly, I think for most of us, if we're honest, that's not an intuitive thing. And so one of the reasons I love Jonah is that I think it makes lots of sense that Jonah is angry about this. He's, he's honest. There's no pretense. 
And later in the Gospels, the truth is that the disciples are angry about it too, and so are the religious elites. And frankly, just about everyone around Jesus has a moment where they get so angry because they don't understand what Jesus is doing. And when they do, sometimes it doesn't seem fair. As human beings, we have an innate sense of what's fair from the time we're very, very small. And no matter how much we grow up and mature, that piece of us never really goes away. We always know when we've been wronged, when our sense of what's fair has been violated, and most of us aren't very quick to let that go. And yet, Jesus is very clear. So what does it mean to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you? In some ways, it's a very honest answer, right? These are very practical things that Jesus is telling us. It's not hard to imagine what they mean. It's a spiritual practice, one that takes practice and intention and determination to pray for the people who hurt us. When I was in seminary, there was somebody who um, hurt me very deeply, and I remember going to see a, a mentor of mine, an older priest, who's actually been in this space several, several times. She was here for my installation, and she was here to help baptize both of my children. And she sat in front of me, and she said, Marissa, I want you, every time you feel the anger rising, no matter what you're doing, I want you to stop, and I want you to go sit down somewhere, and I want you to wait for God to show up. And when God shows up, I want you to be honest about how really, really angry you are. She didn't use those words. I'm going to let you imagine what words she used. I'm not going to use them. But I want you to be really, really honest about how angry you are and the fact that you need help with that. That you don't want necessarily to wish this person well, but that you are willing to try because Jesus says so. It was the worst advice I ever got. <laughs> and the very last thing I wanted to do but she was exactly right. And over time, it got a little easier. Every day, it got a little easier. Until finally, one day, I wasn't angry anymore. It hurt still. It still does, some almost 15, 17 years later. Still hurts, right? The wounds that we carry, many of them never really leave us. We carry them. We remember the pain. But what it doesn't have over me is the power that anger holds. I'm not angry anymore. And I haven't been for a very long time. And I wonder how different the world would be if we could share that. If we could teach as a part of faithfulness, as a part of being a Christian, that what it, what it really means to love our enemies is to learn how to give up some of that power. To wish them well, even when they maybe don't wish us well. What conflicts can you imagine might be changed in your own life, in our community, in the world, if we could take a different approach? Because here's the thing, frustrating as it was for Jonah and frustrating as it is for us from time to time, we are called to love everyone, no exceptions, even the people who hurt us and persecute us and betray us and wound us. And we are called to proclaim that good news, that there is love and life on the other side of those wounds wherever we go, which is both hard and wonderful. And that takes us back to the gospel. 
I don't think that this is exactly what the disciples had in mind when Jesus called them to get off their boats in this passage. Now remember, they don't really know him at this point, and there are a lot of people, scholars and preachers and theologians alike, who will tell you, they'll try to rationalize their way through this moment. Well, maybe, you know, they'd heard John preaching about him, so they kind of like knew a little bit about him. Or maybe they'd, you know, heard a sermon or something, or they'd seen him do something, and the problem with that is that it takes the teeth out of this moment entirely. You can rationalize your way out of it, sure, and, and maybe it's true that they had some inkling of who he was in the back of their heads because John had been preaching and telling people that the Messiah was coming. But the truth is that as far as we know, they didn't really know him. And what we definitely know, if we follow the story, is that they had no idea what he was asking of them, right? Because up until the very night that he's arrested, they are clueless. They get things wrong all the time. They have no idea what's going on, even though he's trying to tell them even though he's told them several times what's about to happen to, the, to him, he, they have no idea. So on this day, when these disciples are called, they have no earthly idea what they are saying yes to. They have no idea what his mission is or what he's gonna try and do. And that's what makes this moment amazing. That there must have been something, something that they heard in his voice, some kind of sense of the truth, some promise of good news that makes them drop their nets at the sound of his voice, at that tiny little hopeful stirring in their heart and chase that every day for the rest of their lives until they wake up in his presence in the kingdom. This morning and every morning, Jesus asks the same of us. And it is an impossible ask to love all the time, to love our enemies, to forgive, to pray for those who persecute us, to seek the healing of other people, to make the table big, to invite everyone in. It is an impossible ask to seek justice and love mercy the way that Jesus does. And yet, it is the very best ask there is. And the truth is that when we have that little stirring in our heart, when we hear the truth, when we have that tiny sense that, that the voice is calling us, we never know what lies ahead. We never have a sense of what the big and small things are that we will be asked to do. And we might sometimes have to do things that are hard to swallow. And like Jonah, we might sometimes have to let go of things that don't feel fair and don't make sense to us. To learn to forgive and to love and to pray. We might wonder at God's plan and the fact that it doesn't make sense to us, but the ask is the same as it was for the disciples on that morning. To listen for his voice, to hear the truth in his words, and to let that truth lead us to new life, and to chase that truth and that promise despite our confusion and despite our mistakes and despite our humanness every day of our lives, to make it our priority, even though we all have other people, other relationships, other responsibilities that we love and honor, to make this a priority, to make our yes to Jesus our first and most important yes, a little more every day, until at last we wake up in him. Amen.